Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Now, I've spent years studying the biological activities of the Brazilian pepper tree um, because of its interesting antimicrobial properties. And so when I came across this really interesting recent publication on a sister species known as the Peruvian pepper tree, it immediately got my attention. So the scientific name of this species is Shinus mole, and it's better known to many of you as the plant that yields those gorgeous pink peppercorns you may find at home in your spice cabinet. Um, and while I do really love the taste of pink peppercorn, especially as a seasoning for meats and veggies in my kitchen, there's actually another more interesting and even ancient use of this plant that is really fascinating. And that is its use in making beer. And it's not just any beer, but one that has, in this case, a bit of a hallucinogenic twist because of the addition of another plant ingredient to the beer. And this is known as Wilka in Peru. And the scientific name of this, of this other plant is in the bean family or the Fabaceae family. And I'm probably going to butcher the name, but it's Anadenothera columbrina. Um, and so I'm just fascinated with this combination of this hallucinogenic bean with this pepper tree beer and how do we get to this magical entheogen beverage. I have the perfect guest today to examine this fascinating brew with, Dr. Matthew Buer. He is the lead author of a new paper entitled Hallucinogens, Alcohol, and Shifting Leadership Strategies in the Ancient Peruvian Andes. And this was recently published in the journal Antiquity. Dr. Buer is an archaeologist who primarily works in the Andes of Peru and the U.S. Midwest. He's interested in a great many things revolving around humans in the past and the present, but in particular, how food represents culture and how we can use food to understand cultural interactions and change in the past. Matt earned his PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and is currently a visiting assistant professor at Dickinson College. Most recently, his, his research has focused on colonialism, culture contact, human environment relationships, and the role of climate change in understanding past food production systems. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Matt. It's great to meet you. It's nice to meet you too, Cassie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't we just jump straight in? I'm really fascinated um, with this combination of ingredients to create this incredible um, beer. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the place where this was used and kind of the time period um, that it may have been used in? Yeah, sure. Um, so the this research uh, comes out of the site of Kilcapampa, which is located on the very arid coast of Peru, um, a little bit inland in kind of the coastal uplands. And uh, this is a small site uh, that's attributed to the Wari culture. Uh, this site is located in the Siwas Valley. So it's, it's a valley that um, has received very little attention. So this is one of the first kind of intensive um, archaeological uh, excavation projects in this area. So being in this very hyper-arid region, we were interested in a number of things. But um, for the project, primarily, what was Wari doing here? This, uh, this very small site that's located on... Um, 
the kind of an, on the side of an ancient road. Uh, we're we're investigating what was uh, what was Wari doing in this region. You know, how are they impacting local people's lives, and uh, what can this tell us about uh, expansion throughout the Andes? Yeah. So how many, was this on the span of hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago? How far back are we talking? Yeah, so this this dates to what we call the Middle Horizon period in Peruvian prehistory. So um, this dates to about um, 8,600 to 1,000. So a 400 year period um, where we see the uh, coalescence and expansion of the Wari Empire. Uh, around 8,600, and then persisting in various areas until about 81,000. So it's about 400 years or so prior to um, the Inca Empire. So this is the first empire or expansive kind of state in South America. Wow, that's that's incredible. So what do we know about this group of people, about the Wari? They were the first empire in this region. How how wide was their was their empire? How broad was it? Do we know that? Yes. The Wari um, is centered in the Valley of Ayacucho, which is a uh, bit mm -hmm. north of Siwas. And um, at about 8600, we see uh, Wari expanding and creating little colonies um, or their material culture, iconography, ceramic styles, things like that begin to kind of expand outside of Cucho, Ayacucho. We find it um, all the way in the north of Peru, um, in the Cajamarca region, um, down to the coast of Peru, uh, in modern day cities like Lima. Um, and then far to the south of Peru, near the Chilean border in uh, the Moquegua Valley. Uh, so it spans much of modern day Peru um, and uh, is attributed, it's, it's, it's considered to be a highland empire, but we definitely see um, Wari people making their way down to the coast as well. Interesting. And so as an archeologist that's interested in food, I'd imagine that remnants or evidence of food use going back that far in time has got to be challenging to find. So what do you actually look for when you're at a dig site, when you're doing this kind of research? As a paleoethnobotanist, I'm primarily looking for seed remains. Um, these are either going to be desiccated or dried out or carbonized, and that's how we find them generally in the archaeological record. Um, and uh, I, I'm looking for macro remains. So these are seeds that we can see with our eyes or maybe a low powered um, stereoscopic microscope. Uh, we, I'm also interested in micro remains. So these are starch grains and phytoliths or little silica bodies of uh, plant remains that are microscopic and we would find embedded in uh, ceramics or uh, stone tools or lithics, um, as well as in sediments. So there's uh, both micro and macro uh, forms of plant remains that uh, are kind of available to us. That's interesting. Well, and I know like as an ethnobotanist, I'm sure you think about both the historic uses of these plants in the context of how they're used presently. And, you know, again, I think, as I mentioned in the introduction, 
this Peruvian pepper tree is the source of, you know, it's also grown, by the way, in, in California even. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a source of those pink peppercorns that we have in our fancy pepper grinders. You know, it's it's not related to black pepper. It's a very different plant family. Um, it's in the poison ivy family, actually, not your black pepper family. Um, but, you know, I think most of the listeners wouldn't have imagined you could make a beer out of out of those peppercorns. So can you tell us about the beer making or the beer brewing process with these peppercorns? And, you know, have you ever tasted this? What is it like? Or have you seen it brewed before? Yeah, you, I mean, it's a very interesting plant. You're, you're completely right. And there's a long history of its use in the Andes, not just for beer, but um, it's planted alongside fields in Peru today. Um, and it is a, a, a kind of a, a mild insect repellent, um, among other things. Um, so we, we, I have brewed this uh, beer before. Um, some experiments with a colleague of mine, Dr. Donna Nash, uh, and I, we brewed some of this uh, a number of years ago, uh, just to kind of see what the process was like. Um, so it... As, as a fruit or a droop, so these uh, kind of stony fruited um, mm-hmm. uh, fruits, we, we collected a lot of them and uh, they have a very distinctive pepper flavor. And uh, based on uh, local informants in Moquegua, as well as uh, reading some literature on uh, other regions of Peru where Moye chicha is still brewed today, um, we, we did a, both a, uh, a batch of soaking the uh, the droops so we added them to water and uh, on the um, advice of the informants we left them in there for about five days and uh, and then used that liquid uh, we took we removed the droops and then uh, used that liquid we let it ferment um, we also tried a boiled batch as well and I'm in the process of still figuring out um, how exactly the wari would have brewed it we do have these kind of characteristic misshapen sort of uh, quality to the millions of moye troops that come out of the ground at wari sites hmm. um and so i'm currently uh, engaged in kind of figuring out this what makes this characteristic uh it, the seed changes from basically a, a very kind of se- spherical shape to very kind of low or pinched so it's kind of like it's pressed together interesting so maybe squeeze to extract some of those uh that sugary liquid uh, to mm. ferment them. So is, is there enough sugar in the droops to actually, you know, to, to really fuel a fermentation process or, or did they possibly add other ingredients or is that even known? Um, we're, we're still, there's a little bit of, uh, research kind of going, um, in that direction of trying to figure out what the ingredients were. Um, my, my understanding of it based on the physical plant remains is that it's very likely that uh, they were mixing um, plants, not just with uh, hallucinogens like Wilka, but other uh, kind of staples like maize, corn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is a very common chicha that's made today. And uh, more direct to your question, Moye, uh, as I understand it, doesn't have uh, a lot of fermentable sugars in it. There's a lot of kind of volatile oils in it, um, but relatively low sugar content. So 
Um, it would make a mildly alcoholic beverage, but I think that um, there's really good evidence in the archaeological record that uh, there's a lot of co-occurrence between things like maize or peanuts or potatoes that could be made into chicha as well. So there's, it's likely that they were mixing the ingredients to make a more potent chicha. And can you, can you define for the listeners what is chicha as we know it today? Yeah, uh, chicha is kind of a catch-all term in Latin America, um, especially in South America um, today for uh, a fermented alcoholic beverage. You, you might see in a market um, a uh, chicha de maize, chicha de hora, so these are um, you know, chichas made out of corn. Uh, but you could see a number of other things, uh, such as it made out of peanuts or um, cassava or um, any other fruits uh, or um, kind of things with fermentable uh, sugars in them. That's great. Okay, so we have this this fermented product, possibly that was mixed with other sources of sugar, like potatoes or possibly maize, um, to get that fermentation going. I know that, well, at least when it comes to the Brazilian pepper tree, these are, these have a very, you know, spicy kind of peppery, like, you know, flavor and also with mole. So does the beer maintain those kind of volatile, very piquant qualities um, to, to the flavor? Uh, yeah, our, our batch that we brewed, um, it definitely had a, uh, a, a fairly um, potent pepper flavor to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's actually a brewery in uh, Chicago that um, in collaboration with the Chicago Field Museum uh, and Dr. Ryan Williams, who'd been working in Moquegua on Wari and some of this brewing um, stuff as well, um, they, they did a collaboration of Moye and um, uh, they added Moye to kind of a more modern uh, kind of Euro-American uh, style beer, and it also kind of maintained those uh, those peppery qualities. So, I would think I would describe it as uh, mildly alcoholic, like ethanol kind of flavor with a strong pepper. Uh, a strong pepper, of. please. Okay, yeah. maybe something that like hot sauce lovers would enjoy. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> My husband would probably love it. He loves hot sauce. <laughs> um, all right, so we've got this this interesting brew with this plant and again for the listeners these this is a beautiful a brilliant red um little fruits little droops um that are in clusters on this plant and you're making this peppery beverage but then in your study you also get into evidence around another plant from a completely unrelated family, from the bean family, the Fabaceae. And this is a plant that another ethnobotanist had explored before. He's actually my academic great-grandfather, if you go up the academic tree, Richard Evan Schultes. And oh, yeah. yeah, and so Schultes back in the day, I mean, this is a guy who was a Harvard professor who took off for the Amazon and like was there almost like, I don't know, like 13 years before he came back home. Sure. And he was fascinated with the study of especially of entheogenic and like or hallucinogenic snuffs and other products that that people would take to kind of achieve this state of of you know a psychedelic state and so one of the plants he talked about was or he wrote about was wilka but as a snuff that would have been snorted um into the nose um because we know today it's rich in some dimethyltryptamine containing um, compounds, which um, if for any of the listeners that have tuned in before on our ayahuasca episode, we talked about the 
consumption, the internal consumption of plant materials containing DMT actually doesn't work very well unless you have these monoamine oxidase inhibitors also present because it rapidly degrades in the gut. So here we have a snuff plant, not really a beverage ingredient that has this DMT-like quality. First, what can you tell us about the, which compound is, is the most prevalent in the plant? And, and what did you learn from your evidence about possible combinations? Uh, well, so based on some of my uh, background research uh, in the area around um, traditional uses of Wilka, um, definitely used as a snuff. And as I understand it, uh, we have uh, mainly DMT with uh, some uh, amounts of uh, bufotenine uh, to kind of give this um, kind of uh, hallucinogenic uh, effect that would be uh, mainly um, taken as a snuff, as you mentioned. Uh, it, when it's uh, taken um, orally, uh, that, um, those uh, hallucinogenic effects are actually um, weakened uh, by the stomach acids. Uh, but um, as part of, uh, it's been hypothesized by um, others that uh, it is, possible to add Wilka to an alcoholic beverage that those beta carbolines that would be present as a part of fermentation would actually uh, suppress the enzymes that would deanimate the um, DMT and bufotenine. And so you would actually have uh, maybe not as sharp of a uh, kind of hallucinogenic experience, but um, it would be kind of more uh, prolonged and kind of more um, kind of drawn out and mellow um, as I understand it. Interesting. So maybe not as potent, for example, as, as you would experience with ayahuasca, which can last and is very intense, can last for hours, but something that has a weaker. So you're basically getting a little bit more effect out of the dimethyltryptamine, but not to the level that you might with other plant combinations. That's that's kind of what uh, we're thinking right now. Mm -hmm. um, but uh it's, uh, it's not common, as far as I understand, to add Wilka to a beer. I haven't found any ethnographic or historical sources really kind of diving into that um, a lot. But mm. um, theoretically, you know, this, this would be um, an option for people. Interesting, interesting. And so how did you come to, what was the evidence like as you're, as you're doing this work at the dig site, you're bringing samples back to your lab, looking things under the microscope. Can you walk us through that process? Like how does, how does this whole art of archeology span work? Cause it's fascinating that you're able to pull together the, you know, to, to understand how these things work. Sure. Um, so, you know, really briefly archeology span 101, um, you know, we're, we're very interested in the stratigraphic layers of, um, these soils. And so these would be nat uh, both natural and kind of a road cut. You would see, you know, kind of the cake pieces, um, you know, layers along a road cut. We have the same kind of things at archaeological sites, these kind of cultural um, sediments that are the product of um, human activities. And so archaeology is nothing if the very meticulous removal of these sediments and everything we find in them. And as a paleothnobotanist, um, I am, uh, while excavating, looking for all the other artifacts, I'm taking systematic uh, soil samples of, uh, of the different areas of archeological sites. And we haul these uh, bags of soil back to the 
lab and under a microscope, I am uh, sifting through them looking for these seeds. And uh, so as, um, as I'm looking through them, I'm counting them, I'm weighing them, I'm you know, organizing them. And uh, it, uh, I, I can't tell you how many, I, I probably could quantify it um, if I took <laughs> some time, but it, it's in the millions uh, of these little seeds wow. that one by one I'm, I'm picking out of the soil. Takes a lot of patience and skill. <laughs> yeah, sure. and you know that's basically how I spent a large part of the last fourteen years. <laughs> <laughs> it's picking out tiny yes. seeds. I mean, that's great. Well, it's knowing what to look for too. I mean, I think that's that's the challenge is understanding the differentiation between different types of seeds. I mean, I was trained in and bought me, but never in anything at that level of looking at you know old samples of, of plant fragments and remnants. Um, I had the luxury of fresh plants that had beautiful big flowers or fruits that I could like cut apart and determine, you know, what was going on. Yeah, it, uh, it, it I, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting that we have kind of two different takes on like a very similar thing because as, as a part of the archeological record, these plants actually go through a whole um, slew of taphonomic processes. So as they're mm -hmm. after they're deposited, there's wind, there's rain, there's compression from soils, there's age, there's bacteria, and all these things that impact what these uh, these plants, the seeds, and other um, parts, what they look like. And so I I know what to look for in terms of what a carbonized maize kernel or um, a, a peanut or a carbonized uh, bean, uh, you know, looks like. But um, these things oftentimes look very different than modern um, uh, examples of it. So sometimes I would recognize a modern uh, seed, but sometimes I wouldn't. And uh, it, you know, I think it would go for the same for you. If I showed you a carbonized, um, you know, example of of something, it, it might look kind of strange. So maybe together we make a, a really good team. Yeah, there you go. The modern and the ancient together. I love that. Well, we know like maize has changed a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. over human influence um, over the centuries um, in size. It, it's it's amazing how humans have, have worked with their resources to not only develop these interesting foods, um, but also to, you know, select for certain crops and certain crop features over time. Um, was there, I don't know if you can tell if, if there's a way to understand this from based on the archaeological evidence, but is there any evidence that mole, shyness mole would have been cultivated or it just kind of grew wild or what is, how is it grown today? Do locals, I know you mentioned they plant it sometimes. Is it kind of as if, as a hedgerow? I, um, yeah, so it, it is, um, it's native to the Andes, shyness mole. Um, and uh, it would be growing wild, uh, maybe not as plentiful as it, it would have been um, in Siwas uh, today. Um, it's very dry uh, there, even for a uh, drought-tolerant tree like Moye. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in general, it would be you know wild growing um, fairly well in the Andes. My based on the the paleoethnobotanical remains. Um, and actually, this is a very interesting kind of um, kind of empirical sort of thing. Where we find wari sites in the South Central Peruvian Andes, we actually sometimes find a lot of standing groves of moye. 
Um, oh, and so a pet project of mine one day might be looking at kind of what, is there any kind of genetic continuity between the two in ancient and uh, modern population? But my, my, so these wouldn't be something like domesticated like corn, but uh, definitely yeah. tended. I think that um, when, as Wari as an empire kind of spreads and this idea of kind of like maybe um, ecological colonialism, they're encouraging the, uh, the Moye tree to, you know, they're intentionally propagating it. They're um, keeping stands. And there's even, um, you know, some scholars that have suggested that uh, this would have been kind of part of a, uh, of a labor system that locals would have been paid uh, or um, some kind of reciprocal exchange actually would have occurred between Wari and locals to kind of help Wari cultivate food as well as these moye. Um, they're great for uh, firewood as well as for the, the droops. That's fascinating. Well, I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, my fascination with shyness with the genus has been more herbenfolia and from Brazil, which is now an invasive species in the U.S. and Florida. Um, but my fascination has been all about the anti-infective properties. And I can tell you, we have found some amazing, you know, trichirpenoids from the fruits of the plant because going back to historic records, you know, from when you had these early naturalists from Europe that were exploring the region, um, there's evidence that these were being used topically as medicines um, for wounds. And then the leaves also had other kind of anti-infective properties. And we've been studying the chemistry and biological properties of, of, of both of those aspects in the lab. But, you know, I haven't looked at Moye and I'm wondering, you know, from current uses, are there other uses today or maybe in the historic record of, of, of such uses of Moye in, in Peru beyond its food applications? I have um, read a few different studies um, that, um, ethnobotanical studies that have looked at moye um, as a uh, treatment for stomach ulcers and uh, and things like that. So I definitely, um, I think that either making a tea out of uh, the leaves or the, um, the droops themselves and not fermenting them uh, definitely could have some kind of antimicrobial um, property. So beyond uh, that, uh, I know that um, you can make a dye out of the bark Oh, interesting. Um, and then uh, it is uh, just very interesting um, and a kind of anecdote. Uh, when we were making our um, our chicha uh, years ago, we also made a batch of uh, corn chicha, and without prompting uh, the our, our local informants. Uh, told us that we, you know, so we would soak the chicha, the corn kernels, and get them to sprout in order to kind of get those sugars going so that we could grind them and ferment them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they told us after uh, we had soaked them and they began to germinate that we should lay them in a bed of moye leaves and then wrap them up. Oh. And all kinds of lights started going off because, as you mentioned, uh, you know, these are kind of antimicrobial, you know, uh, kind of antiseptic properties. Uh, so that would help keep mold and things out as we continually wetted it for about a week to kind of increase that germination, um, which oh my gosh. is just have, incredible to think of. I have light bulbs going off in my head right now. I'm so excited to hear that because one yeah. of my graduate students, um, Luis Marquez, is actually working on leaves of this of the other species of Shinesteria and has found some really potent antifungal compounds, yeah. like really potent. Um 
And so that that would definitely fall in line with that. I'll have to like get him to dig into more of the stuff on Moye and the history. That's is fascinating. Uh, if uh, if I can add just one more thing, uh, when we were excavating Kilkapampa, the site uh, where uh, the articles focused on. Um, so imagine there's a room and uh, we're excavating it and there's a burned layer. So it, there's a there's kind of ash normal deposit soil. And then on the very topmost layer is an, a layer of burned ash full of um, local grass, uh, somewhat higher uh, up in the Andes called uh, Ichu, Stipa Ichu. And it's been known ethnographically and historically and archaeologically to have been used for roof thatch for thousands of years. Oh, wow. Well, we found a lot of Ichu that was burned and very well preserved, but intermixed in the Ichu roof thatch, you can probably guess where I'm going with this. It was Moye leaves. Whoa. And wow. so systematically you have to replace your Ichu roof thatch because you would get bugs and it would start to mm -hmm. rot and everything. And when I found the Moye leaves in there that were very, very well preserved, um, I'm also looking at this thinking that there's so many different uses for Moye, so it only kind of makes more, it adds to kind of the, the sense of why they would be focusing on, uh, on Moye and probably encouraging its production is, is so useful. Yeah. No, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, here we have a plant that has, you know, well, potential antimicrobial properties. Mm -hmm. um, if it's anything like its sister species of terebinthifolia, it has some pretty good, you know, um, antifungal properties. And at the same time, you have these utilities of the fruits and beverages and medicine. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a genus that just keeps on giving. I, I, I love this genus. It's, it's like there's, we keep digging deeper and deeper and keep finding new and interesting chemistries on um, it as well. And I think it's, it's just a testament to here we have how many thousands of years ago did the worry live again? That this was how many years back are we talking here? This, uh, this was about, um, AD 600 to 1000. So, um, you know, 1000 to, uh, like 1400 years or so. Yeah. So a million millennium ago, we had people using this and, and, and this is, I think what's also fascinating because, you know, out of all the species we have on earth, there's, there's, there's a good number that humans have figured out how to use as food, as medicine, um, and textiles and construction, but yet we really haven't, you know, systematically really rigorously evaluated many of these to, to understand the full context of their historic use, their chemical properties, their other kind of potential utilities. So this kind of story gets me excited because it's another reminder. There's a lot out there still for us to explore. For sure. And I, I think that archaeology and ethnobotany and kind of the, the connections we can draw, um, you know, we're, we're finding out new things of you know, useful plants as well as, uh, you know, just different ways of producing plants in the past that are more sustainable than what we're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Don't get me started on monocultures on this episode. <laughs> okay. so, we can talk about that another time. Exactly. So, I mean, one thing I'd like to expand upon is your research on these other kind of social behaviors around food. So concepts of feasting, food, social connections, where does this all come together? And what can you gather from the kind of research you do about these ancient traditions? Yeah, it, I don't 
you know, I could talk about it, um, you know, anthropologically, but I think that everyone, when I start talking about food and how it's meaningful to people, um, everyone gets that. It's one of those kind of few human universals that everyone has to eat. And yeah. we, so we all eat, but we do it in different ways and we eat different things. But at the core of it, food is is so meaningful to people. And it it is it connects not only you know, individuals or groups, but it connects you to place and it connects you to the past and ancestors and all these ideas are wrapped up in um, kind of an embodied material culture you, you physically consume. So it, it's so interesting. And, um, you know, as, as an archeologist, I'm, I'm and a paleoethnobotanist, I'm just, I'm really interested in how far we can kind of push these ideas of um, the social connections that food brings, um, to, you know, to people and push that back into the past where it's very difficult. You know, we have pottery, lithics, old food remains, you know, littered about, you know, thousand year old sites. What can that tell us? Well, the patterning of it um, is really powerful in terms of helping us understand what people were doing with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of where we find food remains and where we don't find them and what kinds of foods are there and what other objects in those archeological spaces, we can begin to kind of reconstruct what people were doing with them and, and in the same uh, kind of um, idea how they were, you know, at least how they may have been meaningful to people and how these social kind of connections, um, the things that we're experiencing today with food and this power, it definitely um, extends into the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think to understand where we're where we're at today and where we're going in the future, it's it's key. It's so important to have that understanding of, of historic uses um, and practices. Well, I guess thinking about the future, you know, where do you see this um, line of research going? Do you have additional projects planned around Moye? Do you have or on Vilka, or on just these kind of hallucinogenic beverages? Is there something that you're working on now or planning to in the future? Yeah, my, you know, my, I'm interested in all things Andes and especially mm -hmm. the food. Um, and so right now I'm uh, working with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Beth Scafidi at UC Merced. Um, she will be uh, doing some stable isotope work on the uh, archaeological Wilka remains so that we can do um, a stable isotope uh, analysis and source where uh, this this Wilka is from. So I have my suspicions based on um, kind of uh, extant uh, groves of Wilka in the Andes where the likely closest sources were. But um, I'd like to know kind of in a region specific, um, so we can begin to draw out these kind of trade connections and movement of materials. Um, and as far as the Moye, um, you know, that's still an ongoing kind of uh, research. We we know that um, Moye is very common in many sites of Wari, but we're still trying to understand what it, um, you know, kind of its importance to Wari. It seems to be emphasized as a um, as a beer making uh, ingredients for feasting and kind of wari seems to be uh, have used feasting as a way to engage with locals and kind of create this political economy and hierarchy within um, its culture. And uh, so I'm really interested in how this, you know, what, what other ways we can look at Moye in other sites and um, kind of use it as a, 
as a way to interpret Wari um, colonialism. And so uh, also with the Wilka and Moye, we, this is the first time we found Wilka in a Wari kind of habitation site where people were living. Interesting. Um, so we, it's, it's been found um, in burial contexts in other cultures, uh, like specifically Tiwanaku, who is, uh, they were um, coeval with, uh, with Wari around the same time, but they're a highland group from Bolivia. We find snuff tablets um, in uh, burials and in archaeological sites. So they were using it as a snuff. We don't have snuff tablets and other associated mm -hmm. paraphernalia for Wari. So um, maybe finding more um, evidence of Wilka either through residues or um, other kind of macrobotanical um, evidence to kind of piece together, you know, was it used widespread in this way, you know, being added to chicha for a hallucinogenic effect at, at these parties? Or are there, is there a more diverse way that, uh, you know, it was used at other sites? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I wonder about if it's not really been noted in current ethnographic record, yeah, it makes you wonder, was this more of a restricted practice, um, you know, or it just got lost. I mean, we know that plant traditions do get lost over time. Um, it's, it's a changing thing. Traditional knowledge is dynamic. Um, but this is really, it's a really fascinating line of study. Um, now, of course, I have to ask you this question. Do you have advice for our listeners if they could make their own semi version of not with the Wilka, of course, we're not, we're not saying you should add DMT to your beer on the show, <laughs> but let's say if you want to add, um, maybe if you want to make your, your beer have a little bit of that pepper tree flavor, we have access obviously to pink peppercorns. Um, is there a way to just, could you just grind it up and add it to your beer to get a sense of what it might taste like? I mean, we're dealing with the dry, the dry droops, not the fresh, but I don't know if you've done any experiments with that yet. Um, I, uh, I will be doing some experiments soon, uh, with, uh, dried Moye, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and kind of altering it. I, you know, I'm not advocating anyone do add any plants to food and consume it without knowing what they're doing first. But if you're sure you have Moye, um, uh, I think that steeping it, um, you could make, I, I would envision it maybe working, you know, I, I'm a brewer myself in kind of like mm -hmm. Euro-American uh, kind of tradition. And I would envision it working kind of well steeped at the very end of a brew um, with maybe like a Saison uh, or, you know, some kind of farmhouse style where you have some of these funky flavors and then you also could add some uh, pepper. I wouldn't, I wouldn't add it to the boil um, it, for very long, uh, just because Moye can, uh, if you get too much of it, I think it would maybe add kind of an acrid flavor um, yeah. to beer. So maybe thinking about it as like a dry hop and then, you know, it'd be a dry, kind of like a dry Moye addition. Dry Moye. Yeah. And again, Moye is sold as pink peppercorns in the U.S. So don't go out and collect your own pepper tree if you're unsure. And again, there are different species of pepper tree that exist in the U.S. So, um, Yeah. Mm. Don't go out and forage things that you don't know how to identify, but you can exactly. get the pink peppercorn at your spice rack. Exactly. Um, to try don't be saying, hey, I made this and it tastes horrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an acquired taste for sure. Um, but Very in, unique. You can get um, chicha de moye in, uh, in Ayacucho today. So. Oh, nice, nice. So in addition to the chicha de moye, um, do you have any other interesting or favorite recipes that you like to um, 
have for dinner while you're while you're there for field work? You know, it Peru is such a diverse uh, country, and its food is just amazing as well. And you know, I I'm a foodie at heart, uh, and and so that's why I was really excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, it, my opinion, my humble opinion, you can't find better ceviche in the world than Peruvian ceviche. Yeah. So, um, you know, ceviche has to be probably at the top of my list. Um, but, you know, there are other uh, kind of more, um, you know, you might consider to be more like humble things uh, like arroz con pollo. It was a very basic kind of um, uh, rice uh, and vegetable dish with uh, with oven cooked, uh, you know, chicken on top of it. And, mm. you know, it's simple and it, it, it's a daily food, but I, I just I love it. Um, you know, there are other foods. Uh, if, if you're ever able to go to a Peruvian restaurant, uh, a dish that's really popular in Peru is called Lomo Saltado. Uh, and this is um, <clears throat> beef that uh, has been kind of cooked in, um, in, uh, with onions and tomatoes, and then it's served over uh, French fries. Ooh, and, that, uh, that's, that does sound good. Oh, that, yeah. That's a very tasty, um, it's a very tasty uh, food. And the last thing I'll say is a Peruvian um, dessert uh, cookie um, is called Alfa Horace. And uh, this is one of my favorites. It's uh, it's made, it's two uh, thin cookies, uh, kind of something like a shortbread. And in the middle of it, uh, sandwiched between the two cookies is uh, what's called manjar. And manjar is, uh, I think it's like a dulce de leche kind of mm. uh, like pasty kind of um, uh, brown um, viscous uh, kind of pa uh, not paste but uh, what is it like a, like a cream or yeah like a like a like a thick kind of cream uh, dulce de leche and it, it's just um, it's just amazing uh, wow. so if you're ever in Peru you have to get uh, a, an alfa yeah, well, and I, I, I can't agree more also on the potatoes because as, as, as hopefully most of the listeners know, that's where potatoes originate is in the Andes and no better place than there to, to have some French fries. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, here's, here's, here's to all the listeners. I hope you enjoy a nice brew with some nice Andean potatoes. <laughs> and thank you, Matt, so much for coming on the show. Your work is fascinating. I just, you know, like I said, when I, when I saw that work, I was like, Ooh, shyness, pepper tree, beer, hallucinogens, we have to get them on. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Salute. <laughs> You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded online. You can find this and all of our other episodes um, on the Foodie Pharmacology website. You can also head over to our Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this episode. And we also have some nice images um, from the archeological dig site um, on that video. And you can stream um, this podcast on any of your favorite podcast streaming services. So be sure to hit that subscribe button and do me a big favor. Head over to Apple um, Podcasts and please, please, please leave us a review. Jot down a little comment. Let me know how much you love the show. This really helps us in getting the word out to new listeners. Thank you so much for listening. I want to also thank our producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for their excellent work in getting this beautiful show out to you all. And I wish you all a wonderful week of good health. That's it for now. I'll see you next time.